From the United Nations in Bonn, I am Leonie Beck. And I'm Monja Sovagia. And we are the hosts of Inside UN Bonn, your podcast about the people and stories behind the United Nations in Bonn. A few weeks ago, my colleague Leonie and I talked with our UN climate change colleagues Alex Zaya and Ola Nils about the preparations for the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also named COP26. COP26, which stands for the 26th Conference of the Parties, took place from 31st October to the 13th of November in Glasgow. More than 130 heads of states and governments and thousands of diplomats from 197 nations met to set new targets for cutting emissions from burning coal, oil and gas that are warming our planet. I joined the UN Climate Change team in Glasgow for the two weeks of the conference, where a team of Glaswegians and I managed the media information desk, serving as the central point of contact for 4,000 accredited media. Apart from my job there, I wanted to find out what is necessary to make COP26 possible and meet the people who work behind the scenes. I had the opportunity to talk to a few colleagues to learn more about their exciting work ranging from speech writing and social media to providing professional safety and security services. As I talked to them during the event of COP26, the following episode was recorded under non-studio real-world conditions. So the audio isn't up to the standards of the rest of our podcast series. But we wanted to take advantage of the excitement surrounding COP26 and listen to people's perspectives at the event. My first guest was Megan Hay, who is originally from Jamaica and the security officer of Patricia Espinosa, the executive secretary of UN Climate Change. Megan escorts the executive secretary to all meetings, press conferences and other events here at COP. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for joining me. As I understand, this is a special event to you, as you are usually based in New York City. What is your task there? Well, thank you for having me. Yes, this is special. She's a wonderful person to work for. She's fun. And when I go back to New York, I am a security sergeant. I am second in charge of the special services unit. So What I do there is I directly look after any VIPs that attend UNHQ. That could be whether it's the head of government, head of state, foreign ministers, monarchs, celebrities, anything in that area, high official, then I am directly involved with that and to assign officers to take them around to do their business at HQ. And what has been your major challenge of your job here at COP? Uh, the venue. Yeah, the venue. <laughs> yes, uh, the venue is absolutely huge. I find myself doing approximately 18,000 steps per day. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, it is a lot. Uh, and it's going from one uh, area to the next. There's a large number of people here as well. So it's maneuvering those people to get to meetings and on time. But otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm getting my exercise in, so I'm not really complaining too much. That's great. Do you have special shoes you bring? Yes. Good walking shoes, um, uh, worn in. <laughs> yeah. So I, I know um, people like to perhaps buy new shoes. However, for us officers and seasoned officers, we already know we pretty much wear shoes that are already broken in to say. Yeah. And I learned this is your third cop. How is this cop different from other cops because of COVID-19 maybe? 
It is certainly different because of COVID-19 and the challenges, the social distancing and wearing of masks. That is challenging in itself. The limit to people coming in, frustration of dealing with everybody because not everybody can get inside meetings and having the empathy and understanding that, hey, listen, our well-being is is the top priority of, of everyone here. So that can be a bit challenging. And, and you know, um, understanding from that person's point of view that they're coming here from different countries, different backgrounds, and they pay a lot of money to be here too. And, and being left out can make people be upset. So it's just having that empathy to understand where they're coming from. And is there something that happened this year that you didn't expect? Ooh, a couple of things happened <laughs> um, that were not so good. Uh, <laughs> a bit personal. I, I had two deaths in my family. Um, I didn't expect those, of course. I'm sorry. Uh, on the fun side of it, I adopted another dog. <laughs> Which is the highlight of my life. Uh, pretty much I've been showing his photo to a lot of people. And then I'm like, oh, Megan, you don't know if that's a dog person, you know, because I'm a dog person. So the biggest highlight of my life, and, and I did it shortly after one of those persons who passed away was my father. And then I got my dog and it, it's just been amazing. So tops everything. Besides that, it's adopting my dog. What's the name of your dog? Freddie Benizen. Very absolute cute. darling. I FaceTime him every day. Oh, so you FaceTime him from Cobb? I do. I What do. does he tell you? Well, he hears my voice and he's looking around like, where's my mommy? Oh, that's very <laughs> and I'm cute. Here and I'm like, sit, baby, sit for mommy. And he sits and, you know, Aww. it's just epic, you know, it's really good. Aww. And has there been a personal highlight for you here at the COP? Just attending meetings. I actually met President Obama in New York at the General Assembly, but I met him again yesterday and that was pretty exciting. And I've met several others, you know, but uh, yeah, I think that was one of my major ones. <laughs> yeah, that's very special. Yes. Thank you very, very much for, oh. for joining me here. Thank Absolutely. you very much. Thank you for having yeah. me. I will now talk to Brent Kerrigan, who is the speechwriter for You and Climate Change. He's from Canada and writes speeches for Patricia Espinosa, the executive secretary of UN Climate Change, and other senior members within the organization. Thank you so much for joining me, Brent. Hi, and thank you for inviting me. That's a real pleasure to come on and talk about speeches because really the funny thing is nobody ever wants to talk about speeches. So whenever I have the opportunity, I'm very happy to do so. So I write the speeches for basically all the senior managers within the UN Climate Change, particularly the executive secretary when she needs support for that sort of thing. It's really an interesting process where we work on the speeches together. It's never me writing the speech and she delivering it. I would never take that much credit for it. It's a very collaborative process. But that's what I do in a nutshell. I write speeches for the most senior managers within the organization. So how many speeches a day do you write? Well, per day, it's it's hard to measure because there's different times of the year that are obviously a little more busy. For example, during the SBs, that's a very busy period. The spring itself is a very busy period. And of course, the cup is an incredibly busy period. Uh, we're at the cup 26 right now. And just within the last two 
two weeks. I think I counted last night. We did about 40. Wow, that's a lot. It is. And it's a lot of pressure because ideally you need at least a couple of days to write a speech, but often we don't have that time. So all the practice, let's say, let's call it that, that goes into the work we do all year really comes through in the cup that you know the key messages by the end of the year. We know what we want to say and therefore we can crank them out, if you will, a little bit quickly. And where do you get your inspirations from? My inspiration is essentially talking to the executive secretary herself. She provides really the guidance and the leadership and the messaging. We will discuss it casually in a formal meeting, but on a casual level. And then I'm expected to go back and hopefully hammer those into something coherent and to give it a bit of a, a narrative as well. So my inspiration, yes, indeed, would come from her. But look, there's there's many other ways to get inspiration as a speechwriter for any particular speech. For example, I really get a lot of inspiration when I walk. There's something about the walking process that I don't know speeds up the brain. Perhaps my brain needs a little more help. But also I get a lot of ideas in the shower as well. There's been times when I've been thinking of a speech and I'm in the shower and I'll just burst out and you know grab the nearest paper and pen that I can and try and get those ideas down. Because as a writer, we know that these ideas can come and go rather quickly. And I assume that, you know, the agenda changes a lot throughout the day here at COP26. How do you adapt to that? A lot of coffee. But no, seriously, changing of agendas, this is something every speechwriter goes through, especially at an event like this. You have to be flexible. One of the things I always teach other speechwriters, I used to teach speechwriting before I came into this job, was that you have to have a very, very thick skin. That's a number one priority because as nice as your words are, as poetic as they may be, hopefully, they could change in an instant. The needs of the actual day change, the speech changes, the speaker changes, and so you have to be ready to change on the fly and to cut all of your darlings from the speech, your lovely words that you spent so long cultivating and growing. And what has been your main challenge here at COP26? It is always, with every cup this year, number of speeches. And it's funny because I think people assume that the hard part of speech writing is the writing. The hard part of speech writing is the organization. And I always say that 90% of speech writing is good organization because you usually know what you want to say or what the executive secretary would like to say, ideally. When you have 40 speeches or 50 speeches, it's gone up that high before as well. You have to know exactly when to have the speeches done. And that's not the day it's delivered. It's the only time she may have to look at the speeches or perhaps a deputy executive secretary, whomever it may be. So it is a lot of organization and balancing what speech can be done when and, and with what information you have. Sometimes you get the information early. Sometimes you don't get it until 15 minutes before the event. And then you tap your skill better be in typing quickly. And on a more personal note, what has been your personal highlight here? My personal highlight was the opening address uh, by the executive secretary. I won't tell you why, but I'm sure you can guess. <laughs> no, I can. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really, really thought she delivered an excellent opening um, speech this year. Her delivery was fantastic. She had a very significant role in crafting almost all of that speech. I was simply there for consultation on this one, I would say. Uh, but I also enjoyed David Attenborough's speech. 
speech a great deal. And of course, a lot of the youth that were, were giving speeches as well. It's, it's such an inspiration for me. And also a highlight for me is walking around the city, which also gives me inspiration for the speeches as well. Glasgow is a lovely city, and I hope we come back here very, very soon. And learning from this COP, what would you take with you to the next COP? For me, it has to be the voice of the observers. I think that we have a lot of legitimate voices here calling for more inclusion. And I know it's something that comes up at every cup. But for me, I've actually had a little more time to listen to them as well. And I think it's always important what they say. But this time, I think that the urgency really came through. And I think that we have to make sure that we're always listening to those voices and that we take them into consideration. And from a speech writing point of view, it's a rich tapestry of stories. It's important for me on a personal level as a writer to try and capture some of those as well. It's not your first cop. You've attended a few before, I That's think. That's right. How has this one been different due to COVID-19? It's incredible. It's strange to go into a meeting and see everybody with masks on because I think all of us as humans, we really read a lot into faces, uh, expressions, especially I assume at the negotiation table as well. I'm not a negotiator, but having that inability really to see how people are when they deliver the words, it really matters. And it also backs up why we have these negotiations in person too. That's really hit home as well because I think it's important to see the whites of people's eyes and to understand how this is all coming together, really, and whether there's good intention behind those words or if it's a stalling tactic or what have you. But yeah, that would be the thing for me. And was there something that happened this year that you didn't expect? I think as we see the first draft that comes out of the meetings here, now, mind you, we are still not at the end of cup, probably by the time this is broadcast, but the day of the first draft or that the non-paper had come out, I think is a little more ambitious than, than people expected. That's good. Whether it survives, I don't know. Nobody will. I assume it will not fully survive intact, but that's been a pleasant surprise for me. I've also been very pleasantly surprised by the warmth and the hospitality of the people around here in Glasgow, including all the security. They're very friendly. It's really opened my eyes to this city. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. I love talking about speechwriting anytime. My next guest is Raula Ramali, who runs the UN Climate Change TikTok account. She is originally from Libya and is the youngest in the communications team of UN Climate Change. Hi, Raula. Thank you so much for joining me. I assume that your grandma or aunt does not have TikTok. How would you explain what you do as a daily job here? Well, I think TikTok is basically a place where you get to see people living their everyday lives, sharing the things they're passionate about, showing you their struggles, showing you things that can motivate you, inspire you. Like, it's really different from any other platform. Uh, for example, Instagram, it feels more like people showing off their good things in their life and hiding all the bad stuff. But TikTok, really, like, you really get to see people people that you can relate to so you feel like you're not alone that's how I would explain it to my aunt or my grandma it's a way to learn about others across the world like really look at their lives you get unfiltered glimpses of other people's lives and as you're managing the TikTok channel for you and climate change you mainly engage with young people here at COP what has it been like 
It's been very inspiring. I feel like a lot of the youth still, by all the bad news that we're seeing with the extreme weather events and politically as well, youth still have a lot of hope. And I do sense the energy whenever I am attending events. Like, for example, I was at the Conference of Youth right before COP. And the energy is different. Here at COP, it does feel like a lot of people, they've been doing this for a long time. And that energy, the motivation, like the hope for, I don't know, something good is, is not so obvious. But then when you're in an environment with youth, it's kind of like something that they emit and it just reaches you. So whenever I speak to youth and hear what they're doing, I get inspired because I always think, what can I do? Like, I'm just one person. But then the more youth I speak to, they they just started out, they were, I don't know, 15, 18, whatever. But then step by step, they have made a huge impact. So it, it's always inspiring whenever I have a chance to speak to them because the other days of my life, I'm not surrounded by that positive energy and it can be difficult to keep on going and trying to make a difference. <laughs> and what do you think is necessary to include more young voices in the process? I mean, a lot of youth have said this at the current COP, that they are not getting invited to the spaces that they should be invited in. The climate crisis is now affecting their lives. A lot of the people who are in the seats of power right now, like the climate crisis will not affect the majority of their life. It will mostly be the youth. So it really is important that we listen to them. They know a lot. They shouldn't be taken lightly. Like they have a lot of knowledge and experience already because the circumstances forced them to become experts and that that is important i also struggle with this back in libya like youth aren't included in any positions of power anywhere and it's frustrating because there's so many issues and no one is listening to youth about what they need and so that way there's no solutions that can fix these issues that the youth are going through so yeah, it's always important to listen to them because they know the issues they know the solutions and what has been your biggest challenge here at cop 26 i would say just managing my energy and stress and feeling overwhelmed because for me it's i would say the biggest event i've attended since the pandemic so it was overwhelming like all the events going on the amount of people that are always around me that has been very difficult especially the first week but now I just accepted that I will not know everything that goes on at COP and I just try to take the opportunity to meet as many amazing people as I can and not worry so much about trying to understand everything that is going on and yeah just make use of this place and the amount of people who are here in one place from all across the world from different backgrounds and just try to meet as many of them as possible. How do you go about planning the people who you will meet? Usually I either a big fan of them already because I've consumed a lot of content on Instagram and TikTok already. So it's either someone that I already know a lot about and I'm a big fan and I just want to speak to them or it happens by chance. I'm attending some youth event and I'm speaking to people and they share their story and I'm like, I have to share their story and allow others to hear what they're doing. So, yeah, like it's usually, yeah, people sharing people's stories and then I get lucky enough to, to feature them on our accounts and share them with the world. 
And what has been your personal highlight here? My personal highlight, I got to see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's the U.S. Congresswoman. Uh, I've always admired her, even though like I'm not that into U.S. politics in general, but like just her background and how she started and how she is so grounded and she's willing to share everything that she knows and teach people how they could become a congressperson or I don't know like start a position in politics or whatever like it doesn't seem so difficult she breaks it down into simple ways that everyone who is passionate about a topic can come in and they don't have to have fancy degrees or whatever if you want to make a difference you can make a difference so yeah that that would be the highlight of COP for me thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me my last guest is Coco Warner who is the manager of climate impacts vulnerability and risks at UN Climate Change. She is originally from the US and has been researching climate change for more than 20 years. She's also an IPCC lead author and manages the adaptation subdivision here at COP26. Coco, could you explain in two sentences what adaptation is? Climate change brings surprises. Drought, flood, extreme heat, extreme cold, melting or thawing of permafrost, changes in coastal shapes, uh, sea level is rising and changing, glaciers are, they're dissipating. And in order to deal with those changes, society has to make changes. That's what adaptation is, making changes that are commensurate with the changes in the physical environment that come with anthropogenic climate change. And why is adaptation so important when we look at climate change? The United Nations is working towards sustainable development and leaving no person behind, making sure that in this decade, countries achieve zero poverty, zero hunger, and other really important goals around education and health. Humanity will not be able to achieve an equitable and and prosperous, stable future without taking care of the planet that we live upon. And that's where UNFCCC comes along. Um, there are lots of different views about how countries deal with how they interact with nature, how they produce energy, create jobs. And all of those things are really intrinsic parts of our economies and also, you know, parts of our family and our communities. And there are pathways towards a really safe, stable, clean, green future. And there are other pathways that may seem very, that have to happen because if you don't, you barely make it to the end of the day, but which lead down a path that is not safe, is not equitable, is not green, is not ensuring the big goal. And that's why we're here in Glasgow and next year in Egypt and the year after, we're trying to help countries find consensus about how to secure that climate resilient, sustainable development. And it's very hard work. Here at COP, what does a normal day for you look like? Every day is a little different. 
Some days are completely thrilling. Other days are just really hard. It usually begins not long after it ended in terms of sleep. You're up early in the morning, quickly, if you're lucky, you grab something to go, go to the conference center. So you're there very early, get in before the lines. Lines have been a thing here. That's true. They got 26. <laughs> you start doing morning briefings. You look, you orient yourself to all of the new information that's come in overnight, whether that's the daily program to the schedule of meetings, all of those kinds of things. And then from probably nine o'clock onwards, you're just continually in series of either negotiating rooms or briefings, et cetera. There's a, a cadence, but there's no break until, depending on where you are, first week, second week, I lead teams that support a negotiations room on a particular item. So what you do is you meet with your co-facilitators. Those are like the team captains, and it's their job to advance the discussion throughout the week. And at the end of every discussion, the parties in the room or the country representatives say, okay, co-chairs, we agree. We give you kind of our collective permission to write down this discussion and turn it into a decision text. And we'll look at it tomorrow. So the co-facilitators get a homework assignment. And then my teams, sometimes we sit together with the co-facilitators and sometimes we just create the draft decision and then have the co-facilitators give guidance. And then we have to clear the text and there's all this behind the scenes machinery. Once the text has been cleared, it has to be edited. It has to be translated. Once it gets to a final point, it has to be given to the parties so they have enough time to look at it. And it's just a constant cycle from early in the morning till usually very late at night or early in the morning again. And from your perspective, what has been the biggest challenge at this COP? Well, there have been a lot of things that I think the media has picked up on. The rain and waiting in long lines in the cold and things like that. COVID has been a challenge. Out of nobody's faults, we have to maintain physical distance. And that means the meeting rooms have had, you know, it's almost like fire code. You can only put so many people in a room. And I think that's been taking a lot of goodwill of the parties that have come from all over the world so far and with risk, as well as the observers who want to watch and provide that transparency. But I think mostly as in any of these big conferences, the hardest thing and the most wonderful thing is our our real core job of looking for consensus. Where can countries come together and trying to facilitate that process? And that's both the hardest part as well as the most thrilling if areas can be identified where there are at least a basic minimum area of consensus. That's quite wonderful when that happens. And that's why right now we're literally in the last, hour, hopefully the last hours of COP26. We just came out of this plenary where countries almost all said how dissatisfied they were, but it was good enough. And for us, that's success. Yeah, as you already mentioned, right now we are in the final hours of the climate negotiations. And what are your hopes for the final agreement? My hopes for the final agreement is that we will find ourselves far advanced from the last time that we had a chance to meet in Madrid. So there are a number of issues that have been advanced here in, in Glasgow. Some of those are around 
transparency. All countries under the Paris Agreement volunteer what they will do in this great collective mission to avoid dangerous anthropogenic climate change. So would want to see concrete progress there beyond what was already achieved. Something called Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, among other things, to make it more concrete, it's about how countries cooperate in reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. So big ideas are carbon markets or a whole number of things. If I even talked about it, it would take all of the rest of the time. But how do countries cooperate to mitigate climate change? It's been a big discussion. And I think also because it's an area that I support and work on adaptation, also adverse climate impacts. Here they talk about loss and damage. There's a lot of work to be done there because as we started our conversation, countries and communities are absolutely increasingly feeling these adverse impacts and continuing a kind of life as we know it. A lot of people might feel like what they've worked so hard just to achieve in their lifetime is slipping through their fingers and they're barely even treading water, let, al let alone making progress. So I think we've heard disappointment where the current text, which hopefully will be agreed soon, doesn't go far enough, far enough for here. And so, yeah, that's my hope that we'll conclude this text and then be far, much farther ahead than we were before and have a really good solid start on Monday when we go back to our offices to start the road to, to Egypt, to COP27. Yeah, it's a lot of serious topics here, but also sometimes small funny things happen on the side. And I heard you had a funny encounter with Barack Obama. Can you tell us what's ha what happened? <laughs> yeah, my, my cousins and my family just tell me not to tell this story anymore because they're tired of hearing oh, no. it. <laughs> but um, So as I said, I'm from the U.S. and I had a chance with a few U.S. citizens just to chat a little bit and say goodbye to Barack Obama before he left. He was here as a private citizen, um, but he's like many public servants have been here interested in progress on climate change. Of course, you know, what a huge, amazing character. And I looked up to him and I didn't know what to say. Apparently I was supposed to say something. So I said, I like your speech because he had just given a speech and he looked down. He's really tall. He looked down and he said, I like your shoes. And then we had a little, <laughs> a little laugh, but sometimes it's those human moments that, that we take away those memories and recognize we're all human. We're all trying to take home the best that we can for our communities. And you already mentioned that staff members of UN Climate Change definitely work overtime during the climate conferences, and usually you do not have the time to explore. However, what has been your highlight here of Glasgow or in Scotland? Oh, the people, they're so friendly. That's true. Yeah. Just incredible. I mean, Scotland has must have so much to offer. I, I want to come back. It's just been beautiful. The conference center is about all that I've seen, but all of there are so many volunteers and they're so helpful and just warm and wonderful. That's been absolutely a highlight. People have been very, very nice and friendly. Terrific. Yeah. Right. Well, we are looking forward because we will actually continue our discussion. Back home in Bonn. Yeah, back home in Bonn. I'm very excited about this because 
the agreements often they seem complicated or technical and you will help us to understand actually what was agreed on what did the 197 member states agree on thank you so much for joining me today and i'm looking forward to speaking to you again thanks monia see you in the plenary joining the un climate change team at cop26 was a truly fascinating experience for me I met so many different people who worked behind the scenes and made COP26 possible. Of course, Megan, Brent, Jaula and Coco were just four out of several hundred people who worked countless hours away from their friends and family to make sure the event was a success. I also would like to highlight the work done by staff members from different UN agencies, the UK team and local volunteers from Glasgow. It was an amazing experience to work together as a team. Make sure to tune in next time to learn more about the outcomes and agreements on the next episode of Inside UN Bonn. Thank you for listening to Inside UN Bonn. The music is by Tim Moore and the design and visualizations of the podcast were done by me, Monja Sauvager. Thank you to the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their generous financial support in making this podcast happen. We will be back soon with more human stories from the people behind UN Bonn. To find out more about UN Bonn's 25th anniversary and the stories behind UN Bonn, please visit www.unbonn.org. On Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, we are at UN Bonn. Please take the time to review us because it does make a difference. Until next time.